Well, our lives are made up of a series of choices, aren't they? Countless decisions, really, that we make every single day from uh, the mundane to the monumental. What to wear, what to eat, who to talk to, maybe who to avoid, <laughs> where to shop, what to watch, when to go to bed. Lots of decisions that don't necessarily require a lot of forethought or planning, and yet there are also decisions that we make which require a significant amount of forethought and planning, right? Which job to take, what house to buy, what's our wedding going to be like, when do we have kids, how many kids do we have, how do we raise them, and on and on it goes. And of course, all of those decisions, both big and small, can affect the rest of our lives. And even though we may not consciously think about that with every decision that we make, particularly the seemingly small decisions, I think deep down we realize that there are consequences associated with every decision. Every choice that we make has an impact on some area of our lives and on the lives of others. And the, the older that we become, generally speaking, I think the more aware of that truth that we become which is precisely why I don't eat a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts for breakfast every morning. I would like to, but I don't. I choose not to. No, instead, I eat whole wheat, gluten-free, millet chia toast with a cup of coffee. Truth, I don't even know what that means, but that's what I actually eat every single morning. In fact, I copied the label Word for word, just so I'm not exaggerating the point, this is the actual description of our bread at home. And I quote, Amidst the complexities of modern life, we return to the land for inspiration. Baked with hearty ancient grains, this bread contains a wholesome balance of nutrients, vitamins, and deliciously earthy flavors. If that sounds like dirt, that's because that's what it tastes like. <laughs> Naturally gluten-free ancient grains have been providing nutritious happiness to global cultures for centuries. So grab a slice of ancient joy. That's a fancy way of saying get you some really stale bread. <laughs> you thought bread was boring. How could you not get excited about waking up every morning knowing that you're about to toast yourself a slice of ancient joy for breakfast? And yet as wonderfully amazing as that may sound to someone else, the cold hard truth is when I think about joy for breakfast, I think about a dozen hot Krispy Kreme donuts. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah, I'm just being honest. A little moment of repentance. So then why in the world would I ever eat gluten-free, millet, chia, stale dirt toast, when I could very easily pick up a dozen hot Krispy Kreme donuts on the way to work every morning. It's because I know that if I do, I probably won't make it to my next birthday. Right? It's called convictions. We all have them, and one of them for me is that if I eat anything and everything that I want to at all times without any restraint, there will be consequences that will have a significant effect on my health and longevity. The truth is we all have convictions about most things. And those convictions shape the way that we make our decisions, even the small ones, whether we realize it or not. The, the way that we live, the, the way that we interact with others, 
the way that we eat and drive and work and play. It's all born out of the convictions that capture our hearts, those firmly held beliefs that govern our lives and guide our decisions. And those convictions ultimately lead us to make certain commitments. I'm committed to not eating donuts for breakfast every day. I'm committed to paying my bills. I'm committed to taking care of my family. I'm committed to being a good friend. I'm committed to loving the church. Because of my convictions, I've made certain commitments. And where do those commitments, based on those convictions, come from? The commands of God. The word of God, okay? In the, in the gospel according to John, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, and 35. And because I believe that his word is true, I have a conviction that I am to love you just as he loves me. And so I've made a commitment to love you the very best way that I can. Because of a command, there is a commitment based on a conviction. And I'm generally not given to alliteration, but there is one activity, one diversion that is always, without exception, subversive to our convictions and commitments in carrying out his commands. And it's another word that begins with the letter C, which is compromise. When we compromise our convictions, particularly when that compromise becomes a pattern in our lives, we will eventually compromise our commitments. And once we've done that, it is impossible to carry out his commands. Compromise is the insidious, life-stealing, joy-robbing, strength-sapping enemy of the Christian life. In fact, compromise is treachery. For a follower of Jesus Christ, just consider the life of Peter, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ. He personally walked and served and lived with Jesus day after day as a part of Jesus' innermost circle, even among those 12 closest to him. Along with uh, James and John, only Peter was present when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus in Mark 5. 37, and then again, only those three were with Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain in Matthew 17, 1. Only Peter and John were given the special responsibility of preparing the final Passover meal in Luke 22, 8. You couldn't get any closer to Jesus than Peter was, and yet at times, Peter was more concerned with what people thought than he was with what Jesus thought. And often in those times, he compromised his convictions. Matthew 16, after Jesus explains to the disciples that he must suffer and die, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, meaning Jesus, turned to and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. John 13, when Jesus began washing the disciples' feet, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In John 18, as Jesus was preparing to give himself up peacefully to the Roman soldiers who had come to lead him to his death, Peter drew a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant Malchus, and Jesus rebuked him, saying, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Even as close to Jesus as Peter was, 
there was still a pattern of compromise in Peter's life because he was more focused on the things of man than he was in the things of God. And that compromising of his convictions is what ultimately led him to compromise his commitment to Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest when he denied the Christ three times. You can read about it in Mark 14 and Luke 22 and John 18. And it all starts with compromise. What caused Adam to fall? What caused Moses to fall? What caused Jonah to fall? What caused David to fall? What caused Peter to fall? It was compromise. It starts with our convictions when we're fixed on the things of man more than the things of God, which leads to compromise in our commitments, which prevents us from carrying out his commands in our lives. Compromise is treachery for the follower of Jesus Christ. It is the enemy of the Christian life and the ruin of our testimony. And yet in the words of the prophet Isaiah, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. The fact is we're all guilty of the sin of Adam, of Moses, of Jonah, of David, of Peter. We have all compromised at times in our lives. We have all, every single one of us, gone astray to his own way. Not one of us is guiltless. But still we're commanded in Scripture by the Apostle Paul to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Colossians 3, 5. In other words, put to death the ways of man, which is to compromise our convictions whenever it suits us. But how exactly do we manage that? Well, just before this verse in Colossians 3, 2, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, just as Jesus told Peter. It's seeing the big picture. It's looking to God before we look to ourselves. It's focusing on his will instead of ours. It's putting others before ourselves. It's God's way instead of our way. This is the lesson that Peter had to learn, and it is the lesson that we must learn if we are to live without compromise. I can't think of a better example of living without compromise than what we find in our story today as we continue working our way through the book of Esther, where God's people, the Jews, were living in exile because of their own compromise. And now their very existence is under imminent threat because of the compromise of a very famous Jew, King Saul, some 600 years earlier, who compromised his own convictions and his own commitments and then ultimately even God's commands, which we'll talk about more in a few moments. So this entire dilemma facing the Jews was brought about by one compromise after another after another until someone finally decides to take a stand. Until someone finally decides to live without compromise, which turns out to be irresistibly contagious as the uncompromising life of the one spreads to another and then to another until we see God's people as a whole rise up as one and as we'll see today, begin to once again realize their God-given destiny as his chosen and victorious people. And I'm telling you, this is exactly what we need among God's people today. We need men and women who are willing to live without compromise. And it only takes one or two who refuse to compromise their convictions and their commitments as they carry out God's commands. And I'm telling you, others will follow. 
the church will be emboldened and his purpose is accomplished in and through us when we choose to live without compromise. So let's pick up the story where we left off last time in Esther chapter 9. And if you were here, you'll remember that Haman, a descendant of Agag, the ancient enemy of the Jews, was hanged on the gallows, but not before successfully convincing the king of Persia to issue an irrevocable decree that called for the complete and utter annihilation of the Jews. And so in response, after the true nature of Haman's evil plot was exposed by Mordecai and Esther, the king issues a second decree, allowing the Jews to defend themselves from the coming attacks, in effect, authorizing a civil war in his own kingdom. And so as we pick up the narrative, the story has at this point reached a fevered pitch the climax of all of the drama, the secrets kept, the true motives hidden, backdoor deals and death sentences issued. Now the hour has come. It has all led to this moment. All of the plotting of God's enemies against his people and the counterplots of our protagonists, Mordecai and Esther, have all led to this moment as those seeking to kill the Jewish people mount their attack. Let's read the first four verses. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. First Haman the greatest authority in all of the Persian Empire, second only to the king, falls before Mordecai. And now all those throughout the kingdom who would rise against the Jews, intending to gain mastery over them, experience the very opposite of what they'd hoped for. As God's people gained mastery over those who hated them, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And the phrase, gain mastery over them, in these verses, by the way, is the Hebrew word shalat, which means complete dominance, complete power over one another. It's used to describe a king's dominion and rule over his own land. So just to be clear, this wasn't merely a matter of the Jews winning some random street fights or skirmishes here and there. Now this was complete and total domination over their enemies led by Mordecai which is truly astonishing when you consider that just five years earlier, Mordecai was a nobody in Persian society. He held no claim to power in the Persian court, no ability to affect change in Persian society, no respect from the pagans that he lived among, no stature or honor among the leaders or even the commoners throughout the provinces of Persia. Mordecai was not feared or famous or mighty, and he commanded the attention of no one throughout the kingdom. On the contrary, Haman, the Amalekite, and all who hated the Jews, held the reins of power. And yet on this historically momentous day, 
All of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents, they all helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. How is it that so much has changed in just five years? Does, does everyone now uh, fear Mordecai solely because the king issued a new decree? Or is it simply because his adopted daughter became the queen? Well, no, actually. Of course, God did use Esther's position and influence to certainly help carry out Mordecai's plan. But the makings of Mordecai's greatness began long before Esther became queen and long before this second decree was issued. The very moorings of his power and influence and greatness were anchored in the fact that throughout his entire life, Mordecai refused to compromise his convictions. At great cost to himself, he raised Esther, a young Jewish girl with no prospects of her own for a great future as far as they knew at the time. A girl who was not his biological daughter. A girl who held no promise to advance Mordecai's position or stature in life. At the time that he took her in, she was just one more mouth to feed. And yet he chose to raise this girl as his own, to nurture and teach and provide and protect her because he was a man of great conviction. At great danger to himself, he foiled an assassination plot against the pagan king who happened to hold all the authority over him and his people who were in exile. And for five years, Mordecai received not even a thank you from the king or anyone else in the royal court, but he stood up for the king anyway because he was a man of great conviction. At great peril to the very existence of himself and everyone and everything that he loved, he refused to bow to Haman, the enemy of the Jews, because despite the threat of dying the most horrible death, along with all of his people potentially being wiped off the face of the earth, Mordecai was a man of great convictions, which many would not bow to the ancient enemies of God, no matter the cost. Mordecai was a man of great convictions, which he demonstrated throughout his life, but that was also noticeably in great contrast to what the Persians were used to. The people of Persia were watching while Mordecai stood over and over again, even as everyone else was bowing before Haman. The word was out. This was the talk of the town. This Jew who refused to compromise his convictions, even before the most powerful among them, and even under the threat of annihilation. This was uncommon to the Persians. They were used to people like Haman, who once his own life was threatened, bowed immediately before his enemies, even in violation of his own country's laws to try and save his own skin. Haman was a man without convictions, a bitter, hateful, prideful little man without virtue or any redeemable qualities whatsoever, a man who only thought of himself much like the Persian king who had appointed him. It's actually not hard to see why the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them and why he was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces and he grew more and more powerful. Mordecai was cut from a different cloth than the average Persian. In fact, he was head and shoulders above even the most exceptional Persians as we see with the king himself and his right-hand man, Haman. Mordecai stood out from the crowd because he refused to compromise his convictions and because of it, everyone took notice. 
His fame and power and influence spread and fear fell upon all who would oppose God's people because of Mordecai. Was it easy? Was it easy for Mordecai to live without compromise? Of course not. There was great cost involved. There was great danger involved. There was great peril Involved even to those he loved because he chose to live without compromise. But just look at what God was able to accomplish through him because of it. And listen, this is a lesson for all of us today. We would probably all like to think that when faced with some great test of our faith and convictions that we would rise to the challenge and meet that test head on without compromise. I would like to think that I would, but the truth is, if we are not willing to live without compromise when the little tests in life come, then we probably won't be able to when the big tests in life come. And I'll just tell you if that statement is at all convicting to you this morning then know that it is convicting to me as well. I'm preaching to myself here. How easy is it for us when someone questions our faith, our convictions, our positions on subjects that were rarely ever discussed in public just a few years ago, but now are very much at the forefront of public discourse, subjects that demand we take a position on one side or the other. How easy is it for us to avoid those conversations? or to try and straddle the proverbial moral fence, or to try and talk our way out of sounding too absolute about positions for fear of offending others or losing favor or popularity with the growing chorus of voices in pop culture, and I hate to say including much of the church in America today, who are backpedaling on the authority of Scripture as fast as they can. If we're not willing to stand up in defense of the gospel when our popularity is at stake, how will we ever take that stand when our lives are at stake? Amen. I don't think we will. When we are alone and that subtle and insidious voice of the enemy whispers in our ear that it's okay for us to compromise our convictions as long as no one else is around. We can cheat a little. We can lie a little. We can lust a little. We can steal a little. How easy is it to compromise in those moments when we think it will affect no one else? But if we're not willing to live without compromise when no one is watching, how will we ever live without compromise when everyone is watching? I don't think we will. Because we don't suddenly become men and women of conviction when the big tests in life come. No, it starts in the little things, in the small tests, in the quiet times when we refuse to compromise our convictions and no one else notices or rewards us or compliments us for our stand for righteousness. But over time, living that way without compromise, it becomes a part of our fabric. We become characterized by that kind of living, which is what enables us to refuse to compromise our convictions when the big tests in life come, when everyone is watching. Think about how many moments, days, years, did Mordecai take care of a young girl who was not his own when no one was watching, and yet he nurtured that girl who ended up inheriting those convictions. It was five years before anyone bothered to notice that Mordecai saved the king's life. For five years, no one took the trouble to compliment or reward his selfless act of courage and valor, and yet he continued in his faithful service to the king. 
It was to be the morning of his own death, in fact, that Mordecai was finally recognized for his uncompromising convictions in refusing to bow to Haman or to give in to his evil plot. And it was only then that Mordecai was spared and elevated to a place of honor and authority. Mordecai refused to compromise his convictions and the result was not only that he was rewarded, but people everywhere took notice and even those who were not Jews claimed to be Jews because they wanted to be associated with Mordecai and his people. Now listen, if we want to have influence in this life, then we must live without compromise and along the way, accept the cost of associated with living that kind of life because it isn't easy and we won't always get it right. I'm sure we can all attest to that. I certainly can. But when we own our mistakes, when we confess our failures, when we repent of our sin, which is all a part of living up to our convictions, people take notice. And even when they don't agree with you, you will have influence because people respect others who live without compromise, even those they don't agree with, which is precisely why the fear of Mordecai fell on everyone in the Persian Empire, both Jews and Gentiles, because he was a man of great conviction. He lived without compromise. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 10. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon, Aspatha and Paratha and Idalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So once again, these verses underscore the absolute dominance of the Jews that they exercise over their enemies in just one day. <laughs> it's amazing what we can accomplish when God is on our side and we refuse to compromise. And then the ten sons of Haman are named as they fall prey to the Jews, and yet the Jews did not touch the plunder, even though the edict specified that they could. And both of these points are very significant in the larger story here, which we'll come back to in a few moments. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 through 14. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. So after a decisive and devastating victory over their enemies in just one day. And keep in mind, this was based on the original edict for people to attack the Jews. That edict has expired, so now they have no longer a legal right to, to come against the Jews. It could all end right here. The king, quite proud of his accommodation of the favored queen, says to her, in effect, look at all that has been done for you in just one day. 
Look at all of the people that the Jews have killed. Now, my dear, is there anything else you'd like for me to do for you? To which sweet little Esther replies, today was a good start. Now give us one more day to finish the job, to kill every last one of our enemies. And while we're at it, how about you take the dead bodies of the 10 sons of Haman and hang them high on the gallows? Wow. At first glance, it seems a bit harsh, especially for Esther, this lovely, respectful, obedient Jewish girl who always seemed to be slow to speak and very careful with her words when she does. At a casual reading, it seems like nothing more than vengeful bloodlust, but the last person you'd expect it from Esther, for her, there's actually far more going on here than meets the eye. This wasn't simply some kind of uncontrolled rage or aimless violence on Esther's part. No, this was actually an impeccably calculated and thoughtful move in order to fulfill an ancient promise by God, which she was committed to doing. And to that end, Esther refused to compromise her commitment. 600 years earlier, God commanded Saul to wipe out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, and he was careful to specify through the prophet Samuel in verse 3 that Saul was to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, which was according to God's original promise in Deuteronomy 25, 19, nearly 400 years before that. In other words, no survivors, no prisoners, no plunder, no exceptions. God was crystal clear. But that's not what Saul did. Instead, he spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. Verse 9. Saul compromised his commitment to serve God, which ultimately led to his failure in carrying out the command of God, which we'll see. And yet this failure of Saul wasn't a spur-of-the-moment lapse in judgment. No, this was yet one more compromise for Saul in a long line of compromises that began some 13 years earlier with a much simpler and seemingly innocuous, harmless act of compromise. Back in 1 Samuel 10.8, Samuel commanded Saul to go down to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And then in chapter 13, we find Saul at Gilgal waiting for Samuel to arrive before making the offerings to God in preparation for war with the Philistines. But as the people grow impatient, Saul begins to feel the pressure to act to compromise his conviction to wait on Samuel because he was more concerned about pleasing people than he was with pleasing God. Sounds familiar. And so as the pressure mounts in one seemingly simple act of compromise, Saul makes those sacrifices before Samuel gets there. And then, of course, Samuel arrives and he says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Fast forward 13 years later and Saul compromises his commitment to carry out God's command in completely destroying the Amalekites. 
particularly the king and members of his family, as we just read. In fact, if you study Saul through the scriptures, you find that compromise characterized much of his life. And the consequences reverberate not only in Saul's own life, but for all of God's people for centuries to come, as we've seen here in the story of Esther. Interestingly, According to rabbinical tradition, during the time period between Saul sparing King Agag's life and Samuel hacking him to pieces with a sword, Agag was allowed to be with his wife, during which time she conceived a son who had a descendant generations later named, I bet you can guess his name, Haman. Because of a pattern of compromise in Saul's life centuries earlier, The Amalekites continued to plague the people of Israel throughout its history, but Esther was determined to do something about it. She was committed to finishing what Saul would not. And so although it was customary in ancient warfare when a leader was killed to wipe out his entire family in order to prevent any type of vengeful coup in the future, what Esther was doing here with the ten sons of Haman was not simply a matter of routine military strategy. No, this was personal because these ten sons were the remnant of all that represented everything detestable about those ancient enemies of the Jews, the Amalekites. In fact, not only were Haman's remaining offspring, these sons, the descendants of Agag, but they were given names by Haman and their mother that are called Daeva names. They were names of Persian spirits that were worshipped as minor deities or minor gods under the reign of King Ahasuerus. These these, uh, gods, these minor deities, were so foul, in fact, that later the Persian people regarded them as demons. And so Esther, not willing to even allow the perception of compromise when it came to the enemies of God, she makes sure that these ten sons of Haman, named with Daeva names, demon names, were not only killed but hung on the gallows for everyone to see, leaving no doubt that this time, as far as she was concerned, the commitment to God had been fulfilled. No survivors, no prisoners, no plunder, no exceptions. There was a finality, a completeness to her decision to continue to pursue God's enemies with a brutality, quite frankly, that ended with the very embodiment of evil, Haman and his sons, the very embodiment of sin hanging on wooden stakes for all to see, which I believe foreshadows the completeness, the finality and the brutality of God's work of putting sin to death through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of perfection, who took all of our sin upon himself and hung on a wooden cross for us, for all to see. In the case of Esther, who is a type of Christ, and through Jesus himself, there was no compromising their commitments, which resulted in the fullness of the Father's plans being realized through them. It's amazing, but on the contrary, when we compromise our commitments to God, There are two things that fail to be realized in our lives. First is the fullness of God's plan for us. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, after Saul failed to carry out his commitment to God, Samuel said to him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now Saul was still the king at that point and continued to be for almost two more decades. But he did not accomplish all that he could have for God because he compromised his commitments. 
showed up most poignantly in the last several years of his life that he spent chasing David, tormented by the idea of David becoming king instead of leading God's people as his chosen one. When we fail to follow through to fulfill our commitments to God and his people, we miss out on the fullness of a life spent completely devoted to him because we're distracted with other things chasing other pursuits, thinking that we're preserving and promoting ourselves when all that we're really doing is cheating ourselves out of all of the blessing and purpose and reward that he has for us. Ultimately, compromise always leads to loss. It never leads to gain. When we compromise our commitments to God, we fail to realize the fullness of God's plan for us, and secondly, the full impact that we could have had on the world around us fails to be realized. After Saul compromised his commitment to Samuel to wait on his arrival before offering sacrifices in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel says to him, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your, your kingdom shall not continue. So again, there was not only loss to Saul personally as a result of his own compromise, but his impact on future generations was lost as well. Now look, when we walk away from a ministry, from a marriage, from a friendship, from the commitments that we've made to God and his people, the impact that we could have had is lost. The people that would have been ministered to by us, the souls that could have been snatched from the fire, the character that could have been formed in others through us, the life-changing experiences that are forged in the fires of difficulty when people refuse to compromise, refuse to give up and walk away, even though that would be far easier than staying and working through those difficulties, those life-altering moments become legacies that live on in others for generations because of the impact that we have in the lives of other people that we happen to be in relationship with now. Those moments, those legacies are lost when we compromise and give up and give in and walk away. Now listen, we all, we all fail, right? We all fall short at times. We've all blown it. I, I make sure that honest self-evaluation with repentance to follow is a regular part of my life. Why? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. And so, of course, we all need to revisit those commitments in our lives from time to time to remind ourselves what exactly it is that is at stake but I'll tell you that I've known people my entire life who can't seem to stay committed to much of anything. And yet they make commitments one after another, but as soon as that ministry or that relationship becomes uninteresting or unexpectedly different than what they anticipated, or they're offended in some way, and they may have a right to be offended, but instead of honoring that commitment and staying the course and working through those issues, they compromise their commitment and move on to other pursuits where they think they will better preserve and be promoted. And honestly, I can tell you that most of the folks that I know who live like that are constantly experiencing less than they desire. They're constantly getting less 
than they'd hoped for. They're constantly being let down by their experiences and their relationships. Why? Because compromise always leads to loss. It never leads to gain. And so when we fail to fulfill those commitments when difficulty comes, we never learn to overcome. All that we learn is to run away from our problems and in the process, often we leave a trail of hurting people behind who never experience all that they could have from us because we compromised that commitment. Esther could have refused to go talk to the king when Mordecai first asked her to. The Jews would have been killed. Mordecai would have been killed and she would have remained the queen and no one would have been the wiser. But instead she chose to risk everything. Everything. She refused to compromise her commitments and the result was stunning. Not only did she get to experience the fullness of all that God had for her, the honor, the love of her people, the devotion of her adopted father, Mordecai, the favor of the king, but her legacy continues to this day. We'll see that next week when we finish this study. Let's, for now, finish our story for today with verses 15 through 19. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of those villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another so that everyone can participate, rich and poor alike. And so we'll focus on this Feast of Purim, as it is called, that was established in these last few verses next week. But for now, I just want to highlight the fact that three times in this chapter, including twice in the verses we just read, it says that in all of this fighting, after killing more than 75,000 of their enemies, the Jewish people laid no hands on the plunder. Keeping in mind that by the king's own decree, they were given permission to take all that they wanted. So why didn't they? Why leave all of that wealth untouched when they were given a legal right to take it as their own? It's because God's people refused to compromise God's command. Okay, Mordecai's decree was an exact reversal, nearly verbatim, of Haman's earlier decree, which allowed for plunder to be taken from the Jews. Mordecai was simply nullifying every element of Haman's decree with his own later decree, which was ratified and disseminated by the king under his own government and authority. However, these Jewish people understood the execution of this second decree as under God's authority, governed by his ancient rules for holy war, which included taking no plunder. We see that with Abram fighting for Sodom in Genesis 14 and with Joshua fighting for the promised land, devoting entire cities to destruction and taking no plunder. And then again is commanded to Saul fighting the Amalekites when there were to be no survivors 
no prisoners, no plunder, no exceptions. These Jews in Persia understood this very well, which speaks volumes of their own commitment to God's command that they were given every legal right and permission to loot and take plunder from those bent on killing them. And yet the author is very careful to point out three times that they laid no hands on the plunder. They refused to compromise God's command, even when the government they were living under told them they could, even when the culture they were living in told them they should, even when doing so would have immediately brought them material prosperity and elevated their standing in that society. And we should all pay very close attention to the message here, which is for God's people in every age, because the culture that we live in does not determine the principles that we live by. The laws of government do not supersede the laws of God. And no abundance of wealth or personal standing can ever justify even one ounce of compromise. Followers of Jesus Christ are to live according to the commands of God as recorded in his word. No excuses, no exceptions, and no exemptions. We're called to live without compromise. So ask yourself, am I willing to concede some of the commands in his word if it means keeping the peace with those who I want to like me? Am I willing to turn a blind eye toward doing what is right, what is commanded of his followers if I think it may preserve my standing at work or at school or among my neighbors and friends? Am I willing to walk out on my commitments if what is required to fulfill them no longer suits me? Am I willing to accept a watered-down version of the gospel from everyone if it keeps the message from being offensive to anyone? Am I living a life of compromise? I think it's important that we answer those questions with complete honesty because if we're going to live without compromise then we have to stop taking our cues from whatever happens to be trending in our culture. We have to regard his word above politics and popular sentiment. We have to be willing to carry out his commands, even if it means turning down personal wealth and standing, because when we make compromises in order to pursue all of those other things, we may think that we are preserving and promoting ourselves, but in truth, Compromise always leads to loss. It never leads to gain. Compromise is the insidious, life-stealing, joy-robbing, strength-sapping enemy of the Christian life. It is treachery for the follower of Jesus Christ, the enemy of the Christian life, and it is the ruin of our testimony. But when we choose to live without compromise. That is a choice that often has to be made day by day, sometimes even moment by moment. When we make that choice to live without compromise, even when it would be so much easier to give up and to give in and to walk away, the fullness of God's promises are realized in our lives. He fights on our behalf and we get to experience the victory the true gain that comes by living an uncompromising life. And I'm just telling you, God is looking for men and women 
who are willing to live without compromise. Those who refuse to compromise their convictions and their commitments as they carry out his commands. As we do that, our lives not only become intensely purposeful as individuals, but the church is empowered. Our testimony is emboldened and his purposes are then realized to their fullest in and through us as his people. When we choose, when we choose to live without compromise. Let's pray.